Hello listeners, this is your host Amarjeet Sharma and welcome to my third episode of Radically Inclusive podcast series. This episode is titled Choose to Challenge because for one, we are celebrating Women's History Month and I have this amazing guest with me today, Stephanie Dorman, who I proudly call as my ex-colleague. Stephanie is a highly effective leader with 25 years of proven experience building and sustaining teams to meet challenging business needs. She started her journey with Bloomberg as a team leader and then worked as a senior director in client services and operations at Yahoo. Uh, Stephanie now works in Media Ocean, where she initially started as a vice president heading their global client services for nine years and she now heads the people and culture function as their chief people officer. Her energy and enthusiasm for business and people shine brightly. Steph, as I know from my experience, is a person who just makes things happen. And I'm looking forward to this chat, which I'm sure every one of us can learn something from her stories and her attitude towards life and business. Welcome, Steph. Hi, Amarjeet. I am so excited to be with you today and also looking forward to our conversation. Amazing. I have had the privilege to work with you, Steph, and I have seen you have so much energy and you're so passionate about uh, the diversity and inclusion programs. I just want to know where does that passion come from? I've never been much of a policy person. I think that passion overrides policy every time. And one of the things that I've learned a lot about myself over the years is that cultures are so important to who we are in our community, whether it's your personal community or your work community. I came from a, a town in the South of the United States that was not a very diverse town. Certainly the area I grew up in was a very middle class, uh, middle to upper class white neighborhood. And my exposure to other cultures and other types of people was incredibly limited. So when I um, got older, I really just yearned to get away from that and to learn more about the world, learn more about people. I wanted to break free of that small town. And so I moved to New York the first chance I got. And when I moved to New York, I met all sorts of people right away. People who were very different from me, I, certainly from different religions and different right. cultures. And I was just a nut about asking questions. How, why do you eat the foods that you eat? Why do you celebrate this holiday? How do you celebrate it? How, why do you believe what you do? And one thing I've learned is that not only did I learn about other people, but it made me a better person because I not only had information, but I also was able to look through different lenses at why people think the, the way they think and do the things that they do. Absolutely. Unless you experience, you don't know. You're right now leading people and culture agenda for an organization. At a leadership position, how do you think leaders define the narrative? We keep hearing that it's the leaders who define the culture and it is top down. And if they don't walk the talk, it, 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 it doesn't seem organic or it doesn't seem natural. How do you think at a leadership position, how much influence leaders have to define this narrative to create an inclusive work environment in the company? I think the, the key thing that you just said is defining. 
And I really think that the biggest mistake that senior leaders make is in trying to define something that they don't understand. And then in defining it, imposing it, and not participating. So what I think is much more powerful is when you let your community define and you learn from that. And in learning from that, you support and advocate for your teams and for the changes that they would like to see. And you participate in that actively. You don't just, as I said earlier, it's it's passion over policy. You don't just stamp off on a policy you don't just assign a leader to manage your DEI initiatives and then hand it over and say, great job. You have to be an active participant and an active listener. And the biggest thing that you can contribute as a senior leader is your time. Yep. Really just your time, your effort, your energy. Actions are a lot more powerful than just the stamp or the sign off that we're doing the right thing. Correct. And it's about being a true ally to your communities, to, to people who are working with you, and not just for the namesake that you're uh, defining a policy which you yourself do not understand, as you just mentioned, right? Absolutely. You can slap up a website yeah. um, and say that you're doing all these great things, talk about being transparent. But at the end of the day, if you, I'll give you an example. I said a minute ago that when I first moved to New York, I asked a lot of questions and learned a lot. That's great. But what I really learned in this role, since I've taken in, this is a new role for me. I've always been on the business side and recently converted over to the people side. First of all, the pure weight of knowing that you're responsible for all of the souls in your company is tremendous. And it makes you think a lot harder and a lot deeper about the decisions you make and how you approach things. But the second thing that I've learned about myself is that Knowing all of that thing, all of those details about different cultures and religions and different types of people, that wasn't nearly enough. That was great. That was a great way to learn things. But what I really needed to learn how to do was truly understand as best as is in my capability of um, understanding, truly understand why and where and how these different perspectives exist and how they can come together and become very powerful together. So again, knowing the information versus looking at it through a lens of compassion and empathy. If you haven't lived somebody else's life, they can tell you about it and you can empathize with it, but you have never lived it the way they've lived it. And you have to be able to understand and appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's like walking in your shoes, right? For you to create that safe environment for them to feel, for them to have that freedom to speak their mind and be safe in their workplaces and also outside of it. Exactly. Awesome. Great to know that, uh, Steph. And I know the organizations have been investing a lot and spending a lot of time in creating those safe communities in the form of programs, ERG circles. Beyond ERGs, how do you think organizations can ensure that there's a safe environment for everyone? And uh, my second part of uh, that question would be that, yes, you have a safe community, but yet there is bias that takes place in some corners and some teams. And when bias takes place, how should that be addressed? Okay, so um, starting more broadly, again, going back to the whole policy thing, once you listen to people and you understand what your community needs, 
and you start identifying the areas that you need to focus on, not assuming, but identifying the areas that you need to focus on. The key thing to creating a safe environment is first of all, to foster an inclusive environment. So I would say that you can't even get to safety if you don't have a type of environment that people look at and can identify with and feel that they belong in it. And in doing that, we've looked at ways to do better at being inclusive. And this includes things like introducing succession planning. So one thing that we've identified is that we have a lack of women in senior leadership positions. Uh Uh, As a tech company, we have a, a very good balance between men and women. It's not good enough. It can be better. Certainly it's above average to the tech industry. But when you start getting into the you know, VP and above positions, we have very few women leaders. And look, we're not going to go and fire our entire executive team and, and re- you know, replace them. It's not that the people who aren't in the roles they're in aren't good at what they do. Yep. But what we can do is think about how we prepare our next generation leaders and that we're diverse in how we do that. So showing the employees of the company through things like succession planning, with a diverse lens, even in your processes of interviewing for senior leadership roles. So there's something called a Rooney rule Uh and the Rooney rule. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but the Rooney rule is essentially that for every role that you interview for, you're going to interview at least one underrepresented minority and at least one woman. Uh, And that's not mutually exclusive. It, It could be the same person, but We've implemented that at our senior leadership level. And eventually I would like to roll that out everywhere, but where we really see the issue is where we're targeting right now. Uh We don't want to boil the ocean and try to take on too much. The idea there is that we are opening up a more diverse candidacy. Uh And in doing that, we are replacing roles with more diverse candidates. Right. Uh, and on top of that, when we're grooming our next level, we're, we're mentoring our next level for leadership positions. We want to make sure that we're not, we're not always looking inside the circle, that we're also looking outside of the circle at different perspectives, candidates that we may not have thought of before, thinking about asking somebody to help you with something that you may not have talked to in the past because maybe they weren't your radar. And these are the types of things that take a lot of coaching and driven by your leadership team. And that's the hardest part because your leadership team is typically the one that that the ones that think they're fine. And you've got to get that group to say, let me lead by example. Let me make the changes. Let's change how we interview. Let's start looking at sourcing for candidates on diverse job boards, partnering with partners who support diverse communities. Correct. And when you start doing that and you expand that out and you start creating a more inclusive approach to how you build your community, then you can start thinking about the safe spaces and the safe spaces, look, ERGs are great, but I think direct mentorship and promoting a mentorship program. And as you well know, from our time working together, I'm a big fan of mentorship no safer space to me than having a one-to-one mentorship with somebody who is a good match for you in the company and also outside of the company, but certainly if the company facilitates it, you want somebody who's not like you. You want somebody who has a different perspective from you. You want somebody who you can have, I'm doing air quotes, but off the record conversations with. That's a big safe space promoter. I also think that being transparent in your metrics, yep. not being afraid to say 
to everybody. We don't have enough women. We don't have enough underrepresented minorities. We're not doing a good job here, but here's our goal and here's how we're going to get there and actually show real numbers. Don't make it up. Here's some real numbers. We're at 38%. We want to be at 40%. Here's how we're going to get there. So these types of things are good, but I think one of the most important things you can do as well is be willing to have, it sounds a little bit cliche, but be willing to have the conversations. So a lot of times senior leaders will avoid topics during all hands or presentations or panels because they might become a bit charged, but there's definitely a way to have a safe and healthy conversation at a more global level that will help people feel like it's okay to talk about things at work because you spend more awake time at work than you do with your family. You've got to feel safe. True. Even after providing uh, a safe environment and creating the right culture, yet there are certain pockets where bias do take place. And if that happens, what do you think, how can organizations address that? And what's the right way to address that? That's a tough one. You know, look, there's two ways to handle it. If it's a matter of education, then you educate. And we, I have certainly seen even recently examples of truly well-meaning people who aren't really aware that what they're doing is actually problematic. Mm -hmm. And that's a frank conversation and some training. Right. I've also seen cases where we have people who are egregiously biased and there is zero tolerance for that. If you've got somebody who is, should know better, and I'm going to sound like a parent here, but if you have somebody who should know better and it's not a matter of an unintentional mistake, that person should not be in your community and you should take steps to remedy that. And that might sound a bit harsh, but There's really no tolerance for intentional bias. Absolutely. And then to a certain extent, I know that organizations do create a lot of awareness through unconscious bias training and creating tools and resources for everyone to understand that what's intentional and what's unintentional. And those resources are great. And we have gone back and forth about whether or not they should be mandatory, because when you make something like that mandatory, you're almost negating what you're trying to accomplish. But at the end of the day, if it's an e-learning, you know, half the people who watch it are going to be multitasking during it, not really paying attention, just checking the box. You have to follow up on that with the live discussions and with the, the demonstrated actions with the celebrations of culture, with the education of of different cultures, with the ERG and what the ERGs bring to the table, with diversity, equity, and inclusion committees that are both global in nature, but also regional in nature, because there are definitely differences across the globe in how you look at DNI. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Such great insights, Steph, and it just shows the energy that's coming out. Uh, you know, and talking about it, you could just, you know, so charged up and so energetic talking about it. And I'm so happy that there are tools, programs that are currently being created in your organization to create that safe environment and to create that, that entire uh, community of allyship. And that's what organizations need at the minimum for it to then, you know, take the step further. And I'm so glad that you've 
you've been really candid talking about the internal programs that you have in place about the mentorship succession planning and and more importantly being transparent as an organization and that's what drives the confidence levels of people to know that yes i work in a in a organization which is honest enough to share here's the problem that we have and this is how we are going to solve it yep you have to have the goal the commitment i'm not even going to call them goals they're commitments yes Steph, this is March 2021, and this is Women's History Month. I cannot help asking you this uh, question and get your thoughts on this. Surely, because as it was the first Black U.S. Congresswoman who once said that if they don't give you a seat at the table, uh, bring a folding chair. The future is better, as we all know, with women at every table where decisions are being made. How do you think women are doing so far um, to claim that seat at the table? And how do you think organizations are uh, helping them, guiding them, believing in them and supporting them? There are many examples of women having a seat at the table now. Uh, more women CEOs than ever, more women in executive positions. We now, in, the, in America, we now have a woman vice president, which as you know, is a pretty big deal here. Right. Um, women in leadership positions around the world. And that's incredibly encouraging. I still think there's a long way to go. And there are a lot of areas where companies believe that they're doing the right things, but perhaps they're not. A personal example is that I am one of two women in the room hmm. when we have executive meetings. And I often find that to this day, I'm talked over or unintentionally interrupted. And I say unintentionally because I don't believe for a minute that any of this is malicious or intentional, but it does happen. So even with the seat at the table, I find that I still have to struggle to have a seat at the table. So a couple of things that I like to keep in mind and that I often talk with my counterparts, male or female, about, because I think it's equally important that we're all supporting each other. And that's number one, to look beyond your circle. Think about your circle as the people you work with every day, the people that you make decisions with. And as you're doing that, look to that person a seat away from them five seats away from them. If you're thinking about sitting at your desk, if you were in the office and you have the folks right around you that you're asking questions to, maybe there's somebody a row away that would have a different perspective. It's the same concept with having a seat at the table. You need to make yourself available to the people at the seat that have the seat at the table and they need to be looking out outside of their inner circle in order to bring in different perspectives. The other thing that I think is really important and that I certainly employ quite a bit, in fact, I did it today, is when somebody talks over me, I stop them and I tell them to let me finish and I finish. It's hard. It's There's a fine line in how you present that without sounding snippy, which is something that women often get accused for or you know, accused of when they're trying to stand up for themselves. But it's so important to do that. And if you see it happening to somebody else, you need to stand up for them as well. Right. So we actually started a campaign in our company about two years ago that was all around calling out people when they were not being inclusive of others and bringing other people to the table. And if somebody's talking over somebody to just call them out. And I actually thought that it went very far in making people much more aware of how they behave and what they're doing and how to get more people involved in things. And then one last thought on this, 
yep. cross-functional teams, bringing together teams, not just through functional leadership, but through cross-functional leadership and looking to other people in the company that are not necessarily people managers to lead those teams is a great way to get more voices at the table and get more people involved. Absolutely. And that's what diversity is all about. You're bringing uh, diverse thought processes, not just the backgrounds in terms of the gender specific or other dimensions of diversity, but it's about the inclusion. Good to hear that, uh, Stephanie. Another thought that I wanted to get across is they say that it takes a village. You've been at a C-suite position. Tell us about your mentors and allies and how do you think they play an important role uh, in creating or helping women in their career journey, men or women both? It's really very much a follow-up to the previous question because advocacy is underestimated. I'm often surprised at the number of people, I will say women and men and different from different cultures who don't take advantage of mentorship. They think that they operate independently and don't need it. Uh, they don't want to make the time for it. They think that they're very senior and don't need it. Lots of different reasons for not doing it. And I, I think it's such a shame because with mentors, you gain advocacy, you gain a network, you gain support. When I took on a new role recently, uh, back in August, I uh, immediately looked for new mentors that would be complementary, yet very different to me and how I behave, but certainly complementary to what I'm looking for to learn from my new role. I now have three mentors and they all offer me something very different. And I leverage them regularly. One of them I meet with every two weeks, one of them I meet with monthly, one of them I meet with almost weekly. We have regular chats and discussions. And the reason why I do that is because we are learning so much from each other, but it gives me the confidence to be able to approach situations and know that I'm coming into that situation with a, a good sense of judgment, some education, some context. Having that advocacy is really going to help build your confidence. And look, you pay it forward. You have an advocate, you be an advocate. You always need to behave that way for every single time that somebody mentors and helps you, you should be mentoring and helping twice as many people. And I firmly believe in that as well. And what I've now learned is that when I have my moments, which I certainly do, with imposter syndrome or, or rattled nerves before I'm about to present in front of a bunch of people. Right. I have folks I can call in a second that will pump me up, that will get me excited, that will get my head in a better place. And they know I would do the same thing for them. And these aren't friends. They are friends, but they're not like the friends you grew up with or the friends in your neighborhood. These are people who understand my work environment, my work situation, the types of things that I'm going through that have often been through the very same things and who still go through the same things. And that's also important. This never goes away and that's okay. It never stops. You always need mentors for your entire career. And reverse mentorship works as well, where you've been senior for quite some time and you might lose touch and you need to develop relationships with people who can actually keep you in touch with what's going on in your community, what's going on around you with your, maybe with different um, levels of employees that you don't normally interact with. 
And by the way, you should. Very firm believer in advocacy and mentorship. So strongly, in fact, that right now I have three mentors myself, mentees myself. So three mentors, three mentees. And then I have a couple of people that I've been talking to for years that we've continued to have a relationship, you know, a mentorship relationship that has well gone well beyond what we originally formally set up. That's amazing to know. And when you talked about you having mentors, and it's something that doesn't occur in anyone's mind that you're senior enough, and why would you need a mentor? And there you are, you have ready guidance available in front of you. All we need to do is step out and ask for it. Exactly. And I would also say, I said this earlier, but it's important that the mentor is not exactly the same as you. You should have somebody who can debate you, who can challenge you, who can help you see different perspectives. I often also recommend that you mentor with different people from different backgrounds and other genders. So if you're a man, consider a a woman as a mentor. If you're a white American, consider somebody from India to to be maybe your mentor. There's so much you can learn from that always been a big supporter of mentorship we've been in a mentorship uh, relationship and I've benefited so much uh, out of that and I would always suggest going out and reaching out for help when it's all available right around you I think a lot of people think to be a mentor it's effort it's just time it's time and honesty it's it can be whatever you need it to be it doesn't have to be formal it doesn't have to be strict. It just requires time and that's it. And we need to make that for ourselves and for others. I'm just going to touch upon the personal side of this questions as well. We know 2020 has been quite a year for all of us. So just want to check how was the year for you? What are some of the biggest takeaways uh, from 2020? And now that we are stepping into 2021, what is it that you're looking forward to uh, in this year? We know that there's a new normal that got defined, but what does it look like to you? Oh, yeah, I would say it's not 2020 as much as just a rolling endless period of time that feels like there's no end and no beginning. And the the biggest takeaways for me, actually both personally and professionally are about self-care. I truly believe that you cannot help others if you can't help yourself. And I see a very disturbing trend of people leaders who aren't taking any time, who are working and not setting boundaries on their workday. And they're showing their employees that's okay to do. And I liken it to, Amarji, when you get on an airplane. Yep. Remember those days? Yes, absolutely. Um, And you know, when they do the video at the beginning and they talk about the safety features and the, the oxygen mask drops down and they tell you to put the mask on yourself before you help somebody else. Absolutely. That is the best analogy I can think of. We have to put the oxygen masks on ourselves first. So I am not succeeding at this, but it is a takeaway and I'm trying. I'm staying on top of my personal fitness, carving out time with my family, making sure I get good sleep, making sure that I teach my employees and, and lead by example that it's okay to not respond to emails every two seconds, that you don't have to be on video all day long. You know, have a bad hair day, just call it a no video day. So that's for me the biggest takeaway. And in terms of what I'm looking forward to, 
I had an epiphany at the end of last year. I was, we took a trip to the UK, my husband and I, he's British and we have a granddaughter there. And because we were working US hours, we had the entire morning to take long walks, to eat breakfast together. And at some point we made a decision to move closer to family, despite what that meant for us in terms of our, our professional careers. We both have always put so much into our careers And that was a pivotal moment for us because this is the year we're making that happen. I have moving boxes behind me where we're moving to live closer to my mother. Uh, We're both going fully remote. We will be spending half of our time in the South where my family is and half of our time in the UK where my husband's family is. So that is something I'm really looking forward to because we're not, we love our jobs and we're passionate about it, but you can't sacrifice your family for that. And that's been a huge lesson. So, yeah, no, totally agree uh, to that step. I think if there's only one thing that this year has taught us is to value and nurture the relationships with the people that you have closer to you. And that's something that over the last few years. Yes, we have been doing our jobs by keeping in touch, but this pandemic has taught us that yes, there's more to be done. And that's where you go where your heart takes you. You have to. Yeah. (laughs) And keeping in touch means different things to different people. I'm not suggesting that you have to go move to where your family is, but you do have to make some choices that will be meaningful to you. I'd like to thank you again for your time uh, on this podcast. I'm really sure it's going to be very helpful uh, for all the women and men who believe that they have it in them and they're on their path towards uh, success. And I wish you a very happy Women's Day. Thank you. Same to you and same to all of the women in the world. Well, that was Steph, who I believe is a true force of nature and a role model all women and men can learn from. I totally agree to her point of organizations to be transparent in their diversity numbers and targets and for leaders to simply give their time listening to different voices and cultures within their teams and developing that knowledge and understanding to then build programs to support. Her advice for young men and women to take up mentorship is something that we can all implement for ourselves. I hope these points resonate with you as well. This is Amarjeet Sharma signing out, wishing you the best times ahead. Thank you.